For the last month or so, we've been talking about transitions. Life is always changing. It has often been said that the only constants in life are death and taxes. But I think there's a third constant in life, and that is change. Our individual lives are constantly changing as we grow and mature as people. We begin life as a baby, needing parents to protect, provide, nurture, and care for us. As we grow older, we learn how to take care of ourselves, and we begin to work and provide for ourselves. And at some point, we move out of our parents' homes, although that is much harder to do today, and we begin our own families, taking on the responsibility to care for our spouses and our own children. We work hard for 30, 40, or 50 years, and then we retire ourselves, and we're treated by our, or retired by our job. And we have to figure out how to live a new way, and eventually we end up being cared for by our own kids. The world and culture around us is changing too. For thousands of years, the world changed very slowly. But in the last hundred years, the rate of change has just continued to accelerate. It's hard to keep up with all the changes that have been happening. And obviously, Central Baptist Journey Church on the Common is in transition. For 176 years, people have been gathering to worship and serve God as a faith community here. But change has been happening here for many decades as the church has slowly declined and as the world around us has changed. And now we have voted to partner with Grace Point Church. Transitions should cause us to pause and reflect. We ask questions about what is important. We reflect back on what has been meaningful to us in the past and we begin to consider anew what is important as we move forward. Melissa sent out an email this week announcing and reminding everyone that we will celebrate the ministry of this church on Sunday, November 19th, honoring and remembering the past, even as we now prepare to transition to a new future. A couple of weeks ago, it really dawned on me that I'll be retiring in just three months after working for almost 50 years, 35 of those involved in church ministry. I have only two more sermon series to pray for, plan, and prepare for. The last series is focused on Advent and Christmas, so this next series for seven weeks is really my last series. And what do I want to share? What does God want me to share as I think about retiring? What's really important for me to share with you? And then several weeks ago, as I was reading through the Gospels for my devotions, I came to our text in Mark 10, and it really caught my attention. The text is built around a man who came to Jesus, but ultimately rejected what Jesus had to say and walked away from him. Yet Mark tells us that Jesus loved him. And as I read through it, I realized that these verses tell us a lot about what it means to follow Jesus, even though they talk about a man who walked away from Jesus. So for the next seven weeks, we're going to talk about different themes that emerge from these verses in a series that I call Faith Fundamentals. That, that should be an essential part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in today's world. The values that are highlighted in these verses are different probably than some of the values I would have highlighted 25 or 30 years ago as to what is important. And that reflects the simple truth that faith is a journey. And as followers of Jesus, we are called to be constantly growing and changing in our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. I don't know if you realize just how unique that line is in verse 21 of our text. And Jesus looked at him, loved him. This is a man who rejected what Jesus had to say, who walked away from Jesus, choosing not to follow him. 
And yet Mark tells us that Jesus loved him. Do you know there are only two other people in the Gospels that Jesus is described as loving them? And both of them are people who were his followers. John 13, 23 says, takes place in the setting of the Last Supper and says, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. Church history has universally identified this disciple as John. On the cross, it was Jesus who asked John, the disciple whom he loved, to take care of his mother Mary. The other person Jesus is described as loving is Lazarus. Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha were followers of Jesus from early on in his ministry. They weren't part of the 12 disciples, but they supported him. They stayed in their home on many occasions. And we have many interactions between Jesus and the three of them throughout the Gospels. When Lazarus died, Jesus came at the request of his sisters. John tells us Jesus wept, so the Jews said, see how he loved them. It's easy for us to understand why Jesus loved John and Lazarus and those who followed and supported him. But why is this man singled out as a person whom Jesus loved? What about this man moved Jesus to say that he loved him? At this point in his ministry, Jesus was leaving Galilee and heading to Jerusalem for the final time. Mark tells us that a man came running up to Jesus and knelt before him. The other, it's almost like he wasn't going to let Jesus get away. The other Gospels give us a more complete picture of this man. Luke in chapter 19 describes this man as wealthy. Matthew calls this man young and a ruler in Matthew 19. As a ruler, this man probably was in charge of a synagogue, maybe in Capernaum, but most likely he was also a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish governing council that supervised Jewish religious affairs and life. This was not a simple farmer or servant or some poor Galilean or some person who was broken down and sick. He was a person of wealth, power, and was most likely a part of the Jewish religious establishment, which by and large rejected Jesus. What does he do? He publicly humbles himself before Jesus, kneeling before him, and reveals some of his inner doubts when he asks the timeless question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? No doubt he has heard about Jesus, his authoritative teaching, the many healings he performed, how he cared about people. Most people in Galilee and Judea had heard about Jesus. So he runs after him and bows down before Jesus. Like I said before, he doesn't want to let Jesus get away. And it's almost like he's worshiping Jesus, bowing at his feet. Now, no member of the religious establishment does that anywhere in any of the Gospels. In Luke 7, Simon, a Pharisee, invites Jesus to his home for dinner because he wants to meet Jesus and find out about him. But he doesn't treat Jesus with the usual courtesy of a host. He doesn't greet him with the usual kiss on the cheek or provide water to wash his feet. He didn't practice the usual hospitality. Instead, he held Jesus at arm's length. During the final Passover week, Jesus was constantly asked questions by the different segments of the religious establishment. But they were only seeking to trap him. He knew their hypocrisy. A Herodian, a Jewish leader who favored cooperation with Rome, asked Jesus whether it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. Well, that's obvious. Of course he would want to do that. Mark tells, Jesus, tells us, though, Jesus, knowing the hypocrisy, grabbed an denarius and asked whose likeness is on it. The man answers, Caesar's. So he says, to give to Caesar what is due to Caesar and give to God what is due to God. 
Jesus always saw their hypocrisy and insincerity. Even Nicodemus, who came to Jesus and had this great conversation about what it means to be born again, but he only came to Jesus at night. Why? Because he was afraid of what the others might say. This man who was rich and part of the Jewish religious establishment would be considered to be blessed by God. But despite that, he still had doubts that God would welcome him to his heavenly home. He was unsure of where he stood with God. So he bows before Jesus and exposes himself and his own doubts before Jesus. The disciples and the crowds were, that were following along. He wasn't going to let Jesus get away. Obviously, there was some sincerity and honest and openness that originated in his heart. And Jesus saw it. So Jesus honors him. He tells him to obey the six commandments from the Ten Commandments that focus on how you treat people. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't lie or bear false witness. Honor your father or mother. Don't defraud or cheat in business. And the man immediately responds without hesitation and says, I've always tried to live that way all my life. Obviously, he's speaking sincerely. He's not trying to impress Jesus or put on a show or trying to trap Jesus. He's speaking honestly from his heart, and Jesus sees that. And you know what? Even after Jesus tells him to go and sell all that he has, the man continues to act honestly. Mark records, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The man heard and understand what Jesus had said. He didn't try to argue with Jesus about it. He didn't try to justify his life and action. He left because he knew he couldn't do that. He was sad and sorrowful. He was grieving. He had a heavy heart. Even in his rejection of Jesus' comments, he was completely honest and sincere. That's why Jesus loved him. So as followers of Jesus, we need to understand first that Jesus values an open honest and sincere heart. He values authenticity. How we act is an honest reflection of what we think and feel in our heart. We don't say or do something and yet think or feel something different in our heart. The rich young ruler who rejected Jesus' teaching was completely honest and sincere with Jesus. He shared what was in his heart. He didn't try to justify himself. He didn't say one thing to Jesus and mumble something else under his breath thinking and feeling something different. You know, we usually think of hypocrisy as a person saying one thing and doing something different. But Jesus here is saying that there's a deeper form of hypocrisy when we say or do something externally, but yet in our heart we think or feel something different. Hypocrisy is not just about the difference between what we say or do, but at a deeper level it's a difference between our external actions and what we think or feel in our heart. This man who rejected Jesus' teaching was being totally authentic, and Jesus loved him for it. Let me take a brief detour here. Jesus' conversation with this young ruler begins with an age-old question that he asked Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In that question, he is saying that he's not sure if God's going to accept him into heaven when he dies. He's not sure if he's done enough to earn God's good housekeeping seal of approval. It's a question I often hear at funerals or from people who are dying. I hope God will accept me into heaven. I hope the good I've done outweighs the bad. Sometimes I hear people who go to church say something similar. I hope I'm going to heaven. 
Translation, they're not sure of their relationship to God. They're not sure if they are genuinely a part of the family of God and belong to Him. They're not sure if they're going to heaven. Two quick observations about that. We can never earn God's approval by what we do. If we think that way, we will always be unsure of our relationship to God. It will only depend on what we're doing at the moment. If we're doing good, then maybe we're in. But if we're doing bad, then we most certainly are out. The Bible's explicit in saying that our acceptance by God is never based on what we do or earn by our good works. We are only accepted based on what Jesus did at the cross. That's why Jesus said to the young man, basically, that you need to love God and come follow me. We have to follow Jesus and accept what he did at the cross for us. Our acceptance by God is based solely on what Jesus did and our willingness to accept his sacrifice for us and follow him. And we'll talk more about that more directly next week. Secondly, God wants us to always be sure of our relationship to him. In other words, God wants us to absolutely know that we belong to him and will be accepted by him into heaven. If you're here today or listening today and are not 100% sure that God loves you, that you are a part of his family, that you will be welcomed into his presence when you die, then you do not fully understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed if you're not sure. But I would urge you to search the scriptures and talk to me or someone about that. Don't keep that uncertainty to yourself. Seek out what God really has to say about that. That should be one of your first priorities, if that's what you're feeling. God wants you to be absolutely sure that you belong to his family and will be welcomed into his presence in heaven when you die. He wants you to have that absolute confidence. But let's return to our theme for this day. First, Jesus values an open, honest, and sincere heart. That's why he loved this man. What he said and did was an honest reflection of what he was thinking in his heart. That was not something that Jesus experienced in his dealings with the leadership of the day. This man stood out to Jesus in his sincerity and honesty. Our second observation is this. Jesus looks beyond our external actions to judge our heart. In Mark 2, Jesus encounters a lame man who wants to be healed and is lowered through the roof of a house where Jesus is teaching by his four friends. So Jesus said to him, your sins are forgiven. But there are several religious leaders there, and they don't say anything to Jesus about this, but he discerns what they're thinking in their hearts. They're thinking, who can forgive sins but God alone? So he is challenging them to make a point that Jesus can both forgive sins and heal this man. Jesus judges the heart. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, he internalizes the Ten Commandments to primarily be matters of the heart and not just external actions. The commandment is do not murder. But Jesus said that someone, that someone in your heart, you have already, if you hate someone in your heart, you've already committed murder. The commandment says do not commit adultery. But Jesus says that if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, You've already committed adultery. In the Beatitudes, in the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus and God judges the heart. He wants an open, honest, and sincere heart, a pure heart. So what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount is the same theme throughout the scriptures. 
God looks at the external words and actions of our lives beyond the external words and actions of our lives to examine our heart. The most explicit statement of this comes when Samuel is looking for God's choice to be king instead of Saul. He is directed to David's father's house and he thinks David's older brother would be a good king because of his appearance, his presence, his mannerisms. But God says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God judges the heart, not our external appearance or actions. The Psalms and Proverbs constantly talk about the heart. God knows and judges the heart. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart, Proverbs 21. He judges the deepest thoughts and motives of our heart. Why does God judge the heart? Well, scriptures fundamentally teach that who we are is really determined by what we think and feel in our heart, the center of our being. As we already said, our external actions may not reflect what's in our heart. We may try to hide what we really think and feel. That's why Jesus loved the rich young ruler, because he was honest about what was in his heart. And that was very unusual for Jesus in his encounter with anyone from the religious establishment. That's why God looks at and judges the heart. What we really think and feel in our heart usually seeps out into how we live our lives. We may hide those feelings for a while to some people around us, but eventually they seep out into our speech and action. The scriptures are clear that God is saying the heart determines who we are. You know, the New American Standard Bible is the most literal word-for-word translation of the Greek and Hebrew in the Bible. In Proverbs 21, 3, 7 says, according to it, for as he thinks within himself, so he is. We are what we think and feel in our heart. Our life flows from our heart, both the good and the bad. Proverbs 4, 23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. A good heart leads to a life well lived in God's eyes. In the same way, a bad heart leads to bad things in a broken life. Jesus teaches in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, threat, false witness, slander. What's in your heart ultimately determines who you are in God's eyes. And the reason Jesus came was to change our heart. Jesus promises and teaches us his truth very clearly. In John 7, 38, he says, anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Jesus is saying that if you really take me seriously and seek to follow me diligently, I'm going to change your heart, and out of your heart will flow a whole new approach to life. Why should this be important to us as followers of Jesus? You know, as I've grown older, I've come to realize that I have to ask for forgiveness from God more and more, not for what I say or do to others, but for what I think and feel in my heart. Why? Because God is more interested in what I am really thinking and feeling in my heart. So from the outside, I may look like a good person, a moral person, a religious person, but my heart may be something very different. Why do you think that one of the biggest critiques of religion and religious people is their hypocrisy? That's what Jesus' critique of the religious leaders of his day was all about. 
Hypocrisy is not just about the difference between what we say and do, as we said. That's a superficial approach. Hypocrisy begins with what we think and feel in our heart. As followers of Jesus, if we go to church, we are the religious people of our day. Jesus will be just as interested in what we think and feel in our heart as he was with the religious leaders in his day because he represent him to the world around us just like they did at the time. If he was here today, he would have some pretty harsh words to say probably to any of us about what we think and really feel in our heart. So the question I want to ask you today is, how well do you know and understand what's in your heart? And how do you respond to it? That leads us to two important questions we need to answer. How do we get, better, how do we get to better know and understand what's in our hearts? And how do we respond to what we are thinking and feeling? This is one of the most important issues of discipleship, of what it means to follow Jesus. How, do we know, how well do we know what we're thinking and feeling? And how do we deal with our hearts? You know, sometimes we don't have a clue as to what we think or feel in our heart. I grew up in a home where we didn't talk about emotions, so it was difficult for me to know what I was really feeling in my heart. Early on in life, I would just feel an inner turmoil, but I couldn't explain why I was in turmoil. Did something hurt me? Was I afraid of something? Was I disappointed by something? Was I thinking the wrong way about someone or something? Was I mad or was I just frustrated? Did I have the wrong set of expectations and that's why I'm in turmoil? Did I feel like I failed or someone else failed me or maybe even God failed me? Was I angry with another person? Was I holding on to a grudge and growing bitter? There are so many thoughts and emotions that flow through our heart. It's important for us to begin to sort them out. So how do we get to know and understand what's in our heart? First, we have to be honest with God. We need to talk with God honestly. If you're confused, you go to God and say, I'm confused. I don't know what to think or feel about this person or situation. God, I'm in turmoil. I'm upset. I don't really know why. I need to help you to sort out my thoughts and feelings. God, I'm really angry with this person. Should I be angry with them? Was I wrong? Were they wrong? What do I do? He welcomes that and wants us to be honest with him. When we talk honestly with God about all our fears, thoughts, and emotions, we're demonstrating faith. Faith that he is listening. Faith that he really cares about us. Second, we need to be reading the scriptures. In the scriptures, we see how other people spoke before us, spoke honestly with God, and how he met them and revealed himself to them. We can see how David poured out his heart to God in moments of crisis or confusion. We can see how Elijah talked with God when he was depressed after his confrontation with the prophets of Baal. We can see how Abraham and Moses talked with God when they were angry or scared or uncertain about the future of the disciples. When we read the Gospels, we can see how the disciples asked Jesus questions that revealed where their heart was when they were really confused. Reading the Psalms are especially helpful in this regard because many of the Psalms express the confusion, fear, or uncertainty of the psalmist. We can identify with the emotions expressed in them, and they'll remind us and encourage us to be honest with God. We'll realize that we're not alone, and the things we're feeling and thinking are the same things that people long before us have been dealing with also. We're not alone. Everything we are thinking and feeling with other followers of Jesus have been feeling also. Third, we should be asking for God's help to know my heart. You know, a model prayer is found in David's Psalm 139. It's a model prayer that should be a regular part of our conversations with God asking for help. 
Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything that offends you. You know, if you're confused about something, that's the perfect prayer to pray. God, help me sort out my emotions. Search my heart out. Fourth and finally, we need the help of other people. You know, oftentimes we need to be able to talk with another person. The act of trying to verbalize our thoughts and feelings with another person helps us understand our heart. Sometimes we need another person to ask us questions to help understand what we're thinking and feeling. That may be a good friend, another brother or sister in Christ, a pastor or a counselor. When Sue and I were first married, she helped me to learn to discern and understand my emotions. Need other people. Paul talks about us speaking the truth in love to one another so that we can go on to maturity in Christ. We need the help of others in our lives. We need to speak honestly with other people if we're going to mature in our faith. The last question we need to address in dealing with our heart is, how do we respond to what we are thinking and feeling? How do you respond to difficult, painful, angry, or other kinds of thoughts and feelings that you encounter during a day? Do you ignore them and pretend they're not real? If you get angry with someone or angry in some situation, do you just try to ignore it and hope it will go away? Do you try to avoid thinking about it? You know, the problem with that approach is that those thoughts and feelings usually don't go away. They keep popping up in our minds and hearts. They don't go away. Time doesn't heal all wounds and make everything right. Two, do you make excuses for those thoughts and feelings? That's really not all that important. That's just being human. There's nothing wrong with feeling or thinking that way. Everybody does it. You know, our emotions are not right or wrong, but what we do with them is what's important. Do you let those thoughts and emotions begin to dominate your thinking? Do you find yourself consumed by them and find them constantly popping up in your mind and heart? When we try to ignore those things, they begin to pop up over and over again. They begin to dominate our thinking. We become consumed with them, and that is not healthy because those thoughts and emotions can lead us down a dangerous road which eventually impacts and hurts other people or hurts our own lives by the choices we make and by the thoughts we carry. Or do you seek to deal with them? You know, as we talked about before, do you seek to understand them and deal with them responsibly? You take the time to talk to God about them, asking for his wisdom and help. You take the time to confess them before God when they're inappropriate thoughts and emotions. Do you ask God if there's some particular action or conversation you need to have with someone else to rectify the issue? Angered me. On my day off, I was consumed by it. It kept popping up and popping up. I needed that. Okay, God, what do I need to do? And I realized in the midst of that, that I needed to go talk to the person. And once I realized that, everything was fine. What's your MO, your modus operandi, when it comes to dealing with the thoughts and emotions of your heart? As Christians, God calls us to deal with our heart, to deal with all the thoughts and emotions that swirl around inside of us. When we seek to do that with God's help, his life grows in us more and more. But when we ignore them, we drift farther and farther away from Jesus and how he wants us to live. We short-circuit his work in our lives. 
Do we respond like David when confused with inappropriate thoughts and emotions praying? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. How do you respond? Father, we come to you this morning and we recognize that we're all frail people, that we all experience many things in life and we have many emotions and feelings and thoughts. And, and, and Father, we're honest that sometimes those are not a good emotions or feelings or heart. They're hateful, they're angry, they're many things. We are frail people. But God, you know our heart. And, and more than anything, we recognize you just want us to be honest with you. Help us to learn to be honest with you, to understand our hearts and feelings. Help us to be open with you. Help us to come and seek your help and to allow you to change our heart from the inside out. Father, anyone here who, who doesn't understand that, I pray that, Father, you will just open their eyes and hearts and minds to see just how much you love them and how much you want to bring new life to them from the inside out, from their heart, that gives them a whole new thought and approach to how to live. Work in us, Father, by your Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.